And welcome to the Destinate NZ Show. I'm Michelle. And I'm Chambers. And today we're talking to the South Pacific Pocket Guide. How are you, Chambers? I'm really good, thanks, Michelle. And yourself? Oh, great. We're enjoying a lovely long weekend here in Topol for Auckland anniversary. So happy birthday, Auckland. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. And yes, yeah, sorry to drag you in to work on a podcast on your day off. <laughs> Oh, that's okay. Look, we've had a wonderful weekend so far. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about before we get to Robin's interview. But firstly, we've had the summer concerts happen this weekend. So Saturday, we had, I think, 13,000 people in the amphitheater in Topol wow. for the Greenstone Entertainment Summer Concert. They went up to Fidianga on Sunday to have it there. And what an incredible day out. Only in New Zealand. Hey, literally only yeah. in New Zealand. Aren't we so lucky? We are. Um, as much as we struggle in the industry because our borders are closed and everything else, my God, I'd much rather be in this position having gone hard and done what we did than, and, and yes, we've made some slip ups a little bit along the way and we need to be better at doing keeping us safe but we'll let the government sort that out in the meantime we're just pleased we've got an open and a free border inside New Zealand anyway I know and I just hope all of our friends in the tourism industry particularly in I guess the top half of the North Island because that's been the long weekend celebrations and I think Nelson might also have a long weekend this weekend but yes correct they yeah do. so hopefully all of our friends in the industry have had a really busy weekend I know it's been super busy here in Topol we had the hydroplane boats out on the lake oh, on wow. Saturday and Sunday as well so which were incredible oh my god they're rocket ships <laughs> so wow. very noisy as well but yeah just thousands of people out enjoying the sunshine and in the cafes and hopefully spending some money in the tourism activities as well because we've got one more long weekend and then it might quieten down a little bit I think yeah I think we'll see the travellers that like travelling outside of the school holidays come through, you know, and there are a few of those, double income, no kids. But nonetheless, it, it's probably going to be trickles of people, not herds of people, I would say. Yes, definitely. And um, we do cover this off right at the end of Robin's interview that we're about to play. But I just had to give a shout out to Tourism New Zealand as well for their new campaign with Tom Sainsbury. Have yes. you seen it? Yes, I'm racked up. And yeah. awesome that it's gone off around the world. Like, hasn't it? So many co um, comments of, we already love New Zealand and how do I get citizenship? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also all of those people going, oh my God, I'm one of those. I'm one of those. <laughs> I've got that photo in the lavender. <laughs> uh, I don't care about the lavender one because I think that's a great photo with the purple door, but oh yeah. my God, the hot dog legs. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was a sucker for those a few years back. <laughs> I know, I know. Even um, our, it was funny because John's whole family got in on that over the weekend on our little WhatsApp chat and started sending all their hot dog photos that we've taken <laughs> over the years. And it's just, yeah, made us crack up. I thought it really hit the mark. And yeah, he's incredibly funny, Tom. So he's great. Yeah, I love talent. We've got we've got another issue. Yeah. Lavender, what's with lavender? 
Anyway, so a couple of good things happened in the last week. And obviously this weekend coming up, we've got another long weekend for the whole country for Waitangi weekend. So hopefully it will be nice and warm and sunny once again and everybody can get out and not travel under the social influence and do something new. (laughs) Do something new, New Zealand. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So we have Robin from the South Pacific Pocket Guide joining us today. He is a Frenchie here in New Zealand. So that is where the accent is from if you're listening in. But we'll leave you with that episode or the interview and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. And I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, talk to you next week. Cheers, Michelle. Kia ora Robin and welcome to the Destinate NZ show. For those of our listeners who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your background in NZ tourism and how that led to the famous website NZ Pocket Guide that you originally launched? Well, sure. Thank you for having me. So I worked and traveled in about 16 countries around the world and I landed in New Zealand and fell in love with it. So I started a business that was helping working holiday makers get their bearings in New Zealand. So when they were landing, we had, uh, you know, we were doing bank accounts and all those kind of things for them. And I heard like hundreds of stories of travelers um, telling us that they were struggling to find the right information for traveling in, the, uh, in New Zealand and that we were good sent and it was super helpful and all that. So obviously, like everybody, uh, you know, I thought, oh, it'd be easy to write a travel guide of New Zealand myself. I traveled a lot around New Zealand for work and pleasure. Sounds like a piece of cake. And then I just realized that it was a full-time job. So we had to hire staff. And, but the good thing is that we grew super fast. And we started a website called uh, backpackerguide.nz. And within only a couple of years, it took over the other business. And now we have the most popular travel guide to New Zealand, which is now rebranded to nzpocketguide.com. And we also have the most popular travel guide in Fiji, Tonga, and Nui. So and they are nzpocketguide.com, fijipocketguide.com, tongapocketguide.com, and guess what? Nuepocketguide.com. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, Robin, with that switch to um, running the South Pacific Pocket Guides, can you tell us a little bit about how that focused switched for you and what are there any differences in those sites to the New Zealand Pocket Guide? Yeah, so, so when we started NZ, sorry, a backpacker guide back in the days, on the first year, we, we had a quarter of a million unique readers already. So we already were well beyond just the backpacker niche. And we were never like a backpacker only um, type of guides. So we were just a travel guide for anyone that was looking beyond the, the five so-called hero attractions that get constantly promoted. Plus, we had a lot of um, practical travel tips. So when we reached about, um, like in 2019, when we reached 6.3 million unique readers, it was, come to, it was time for us to rework the whole architecture of the site, which always have to be done regularly in tech. So we thought it'd be a great time to rebrand and show that we were a bit more mainstream. We had plans to expand to the South Pacific and we already did expand to Fiji before. So we had Fiji Pocket Guide and we had this template that we already tested and tried. On the same year, we were actually called by Apple to be featuring one of their presentations for great information and sleek design for the website, which is pretty awesome. Mm. So we knew we had something that worked. So then we, we changed the whole branding and the whole architecture of the New Zealand site to switch from Backpacker Guide to NZ Pocket Guide, and we added a ton of contents. And so, yeah, that's basically the, the whole story of how we rebranded. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Wow. And um, do you have a team or a crew of people that help you run all these sites? So when it comes to content, everything is done here in New Zealand, but we do have a web team uh, with two guys based in Chicago in the USA and one guy in Manila in the Philippines. 
And uh, for the South Pacific Travel Guide, we do take a lot of help from locals and they're more like in contract kind of base in Fiji, Nui and Tonga. Right. How did you meet all these people? Get, go there, talk to them, uh, go fish with them, uh, you know, go swim with shark with them. They literally just grab onto the tail of the shark and let them swim in the crawl. I just, you know, when you see a guy do that, you're like, I can trust you with my business. It's fine. <laughs> Oh, wow. So you also work really closely with government agencies in the South Pacific. So what do you offer to support them? And is it the same here in New Zealand? Well, so we do a lot in the South Pacific. So first up, we're able to share like really important data with them regarding travel planning behaviors and market gaps, which is very important for them because they're still kind of developing their industry from the ground up. And, and building offerings uh, in the South Pacific. We're also able to offer them uh, something similar to the visitor survey that we have here in New Zealand, in which we gather post-travel information for travelers that finish their trip, but more in the digital form, something, the visitor survey into the 21st century. We also work with them on influencing travelers' behavior to avoid over-tourism in some areas because they're much smaller places they are much more subject to over-tourism during their, their peak seasons. Mm. So for expand a spot that will get a ton of interest may not offer a great experience due to its popularity. So what we can do is kind of nerf the popularity of one spot by kind of uh, offering or, or maybe pushing on our platforms similar attractions so we can split the flow of tourists between uh, across multiple experiences and offer a better experience in return. Uh, what else do we do? We also offer a ton of training on location for industries as well as thousands of images to promote their destination. We also do funding a project that are, such as what we did in Nure, in which we sent uh, metal reusable straws to all their restaurants, resorts, uh, bars to avoid the use of plastic straw in the South Pacific. We, mm -hmm. we prefer that. Yeah. Um, and I'll probably forget some stuff. Uh, the South Pacific is more like our passion project. So we do all those kind of things for free. It's just, it's just good karma. It's just what we love. Yeah. That's awesome. And how, sorry, Robin, how long have you been around? Like how long has the Pocket Guide been in existence? So the New Zealand version, like starting from Backpacker Guide, I think we're closing eight and a half, maybe between eight and nine years okay. has been yeah. around. Uh, in the South Pacific, when it started about three years ago. Awesome. Wow. That's a lot of work in three years. Yeah, we, we like to keep ourselves busy. <laughs> no lockdown for us. No, no lockdown slowdown for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Robin, with all that intel that you have access to, what issues can you foresee for both travellers to these destinations and for the destinations whilst the borders stay closed and or um, open slowly? Yeah, so for New Zealand, you know, I think, I think it's for New Zealand and actually to the South Pacific, I actually think travellers would be fine. I feel like there's a lot of buzz currently around how scared people would be of certain destination and how hygiene conscious they would be. But all our current surveys, um, uh, even for New Zealand, are not really showing a massive spike on those days. A bit of a spike, but really not huge. So I think that the main kind of issue that, uh, that we'll incur is that some destinations that have locked in themselves into one or two markets only, such as luxury or cruise, for example, will struggle because uh, the travelers that will lead the recovery will be younger travelers. They will travel for longer, but they will be on a budget. And so destinations that have attempted to price them out of their country may uh, recover a little slower. Uh, for example, the high-value market, uh, the high-value travelers in, in the luxury market, for instance, are still traveling right now at a highest rate than any other segment. So for this reason, there is a huge competition uh, for this niche, and there are tens of destinations that are currently offering world-class luxury experience 
beyond anything you can dream of. Like some of them even include a COVID vaccine in their experiences. So, uh, so we tend to see lower, I mean, for, for all data that we have, right? we tend to see lower satisfaction for spending here in New Zealand than we see in other places. So it's a good reminder that we can't just put the price up and call it uh, a luxury experience. The whole experience design has to change entirely to satisfy the very discerning markets that is the luxe market. So some destinations, they have decades of experience doing that here. Then I feel like we're just learning. So we'll have to learn a little faster. What I foresee the most in New Zealand is that we will have to all be on board with offerings that tailor to every market and offer real value for its price across every single segment. It has to be worth the price. When it comes down to the South Pacific, honestly, they're much more niche destinations. So I think that they will recover fine. The climb is much less steep. And they are still um, they are still having the same icons, which are still extremely attracting to travelers, such as Tonga would still have whales and you're still able to swim with whales. And Fiji would still have those perfect, fantastic beaches. The only struggle, I mean, the main struggle that I foresee them having is that they will have to kind of reopen uh, those resorts that have been closed for 18 or more months. And that is a lot of work to kind of get things back on track and uh, retrain the staff and all that. Mm. That goes really nicely with the stats that came out in the Tourism New Zealand webinar last week. I don't know if you guys listened in, but they'd done some research, mainly with the domestic market, not international market, talking about this, the need for the shift away from value for money to value for experience. And I think what you've just said there, Robin, really ties into that and that we all need to be looking at not just the dollars that people are paying, but what is that whole experience from woe to go? I totally agree. It's not about juicing the, the traveler out of yeah. as much money as possible and uh, you know, using any buzzword which is currently in in yeah. order to, uh, to get them to spend even more money. Uh, it's about actually providing extremely good value for money because well, travelers will have even more choices, um, you know, post-COVID. Yeah, yeah. I know I've heard some really great examples of people who have actually had such a great time and experiences that they've offered donations or other forms because they've actually said, and I had an email through this morning saying they think more people need to learn about us. So they gave us a donation for advertising. Now this is a charitable trust, but those people obviously got great value for experience out of their visit to that attraction and obviously put their money where their mouth is. And that's awesome. And we'd love to hear more examples of that from around the country. And I think you also touched on, Robin, the high value market. And and then at that point, you were referring to the luxury market. So you changed into talking about luxury market. And I think that's another thing that we keep getting mixed up, isn't it? A high value traveler is actually it could it could be a range of people from a range of different markets because they are high value, be it that they spend longer here, uh, more regional dispersal, maybe lower budgets. But nonetheless, they still spend relatively close you know to quite substantial amount of money in the time that they're here then you've got your luxury where you've got probably fewer in that sector but will spend bigger in a shorter period of time yeah i would agree that i would argue actually that someone that comes in new zealand for only one week and uh, go to Auckland and fly to queenstown and go from one lodge to the other and just flies across actually offers despite the fact that we spend you know more money offers less value to new zealand than someone that would come in new zealand for two weeks and actually go from Gisborne to, to New Plymouth and actually visit those places, which usually see very little amount of international mm. dispersal. So yeah. I think that the, the value and in job-wise and for the greater economy is actually greater for those other travelers as well. 
Yeah, it's all those little stops in the bakeries for custard squares and, <laughs> and meat pies, and you know it does. It adds to the enrichment. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, Robin, do you think there's an appetite for the people out there holding working holiday visas to actually quarantine if it meant that they could visit any of our destinations in the South Pacific? Well. We see some kind of interest for it. And I will argue that we should see even more interest from the New Zealand side of things that, than, than, than actually from the traveler side of things, since we're struggling so hard to find people to pick our avos and our kiwi fruits. So I think we're going to have to take in consideration a lot of little items when it comes down to the working holiday makers uh, post-COVID. Because first, uh, planning a working holiday experience in New Zealand requires a disproportionate amount of savings for uh, a 19 years old uh, to save six grand to come to New Zealand to do this working holiday visa. And if mm-hmm. 40 years old, I need to save six grand for a holiday in New Zealand. So for that reason, that's going to be a much taller order in a post-COVID world where those 19 years old would have a hard time having a job because you don't really need any more waiters at the moment in Europe. You don't need mm. too much retail workers in the US at the moment. So there may be a little bit of a slowdown on that program, and there's going to be, therefore, more competition to get those people coming. Plus, on top of it, New Zealand in the past have never really done a good job in uh, argumenting the value to its population uh, of the working holiday makers, and also just simply calculating the value that those travelers are actually bringing. They do the job that we don't want to do. Uh, They spend all their earnings here in New Zealand. Uh, mm-hmm. They bring money from overseas. They also bring family members to visit them from overseas, which therefore I counted as tourists, but they will not be here if the working holidaymakers weren't here. So the economy contribution is huge. But on paper, it's not thin as this because there is like an incentive for the government to attract them. So in short, the working holidaymakers may pick Australia instead because there's much more money to be made and it's cheaper to live there. It's cheaper to get there. And there is still a push for Australia to get uh, working holiday makers. But on the other side, when it comes to students, for example, New Zealand is doing the math really easily. Uh, they can't count the cost of life and the tuition fees and all that, and it's equivalent to about 27,000 New Zealand dollars. And this is why so many countries now are working super hard to get a lot of uh, uni students, and, this, and, and students are interested to come despite the quarantine. So we see a big shift of like New Zealand trying to say, okay, we're going to open more, one more thousand. Um, student slots in New Zealand and try to get more students. But we see Canada, which has opened much more slots and getting a lot of people that were interested in New Zealand into Canada instead. So we're on the right track kind of fighting for the students. I think we just need to apply that strategy to the working holidaymakers too um, before it's too late because it's better to be proactive. It takes them a long time to plan that trip. It's not mm-hmm. something that you just decide, I'm going to go on a holiday in New Zealand. It's something that it takes you a year to save for it. I mean, I know I did that. I, I did work mm. with days in many different places in the world. It's not something you just decide on a whim, uh, like the tourists are doing. So we need to start doing the work for getting working holiday makers when we open now. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. The other thing I think that we miss a lot of the time with the working holiday visa people is that they come in and often provide that help in those frontline roles as well. So hospitality, the hotel receptions, and in Europe particularly, and that's probably where I'm most comfortable, is that those roles are seen as professions, whereas we don't value those roles here. So a lot of the time we just go, oh, they're just doing, you know, they're just working 
as a waitress or they're just working. Whereas you you walk into a, a hotel in Europe and I use this example all the time. I remember being in the Netherlands and I watched this girl on reception as I was waiting for my taxi to arrive and she transitioned between six different languages between the person in front of her on the phone staff it was incredible to watch and I think that's the bit that they lift our service I've noticed it over the summer traveling around that I don't think with Kiwis predominantly and I know this will be a little bit controversial but I don't think our service has been as good as what it has been in the past I, agree, I really agree with that. I will say that one other issue that we're having is that that girl that you were talking about, and obviously I, I don't know her, but I would argue that I actually I would be willing to bet that she's paid at least twice minimum wage, if not mm. more. She, she is very well paid. Yep. In New Zealand, someone sitting at reception at midnight in a hotel really gets barely minimum wage. And that's a job that no Kiwis want to do. So we need yep. those working holiday makers to want to do all we need to actually shift our industry perspective, uh, perception of that and actually make that into careers and therefore being able to provide this higher um, level of service. And that, that's one of the points I was talking about when we talked about the luxury market. Mm. Uh, we need to be able to amp up our services like really high. And that is every single person from the yep. literally the person that refills you a glass of water to the person that designed the experience behind the scene and, and try to gather those, those, those clients to come to New Zealand. We need to have those services like super higher because there are some, some places in the world like Las Vegas, for example, which are, they've done that for decades and decades and decades. And their, their experiences are like pristine. There is, yeah. there is not a hair straight. And, and you're so right, you know, because uh, exactly as you said, Michelle, it, it's seen in Europe as a, a career and a prof- it's professional, right? That's your professional career that you're going to walk down that route. And, and therefore, you're held accountable when you take those roles on. You are paid more, but you're held accountable for them. And they're the start of somebody's journey as well. If you're checking into a, a luxury hotel, somebody who's being paid minimum wage is supposed to give a five-star experience. First impression. On- yeah. It's not going to do that. There's no way it's not going to die. It's going to toss you back and, and, and you know, it's going to toss you back in a room and probably give you a grunt alongside with that. <laughs> well, you know, I do have a cousin actually, which is in Paris. He's been a bellman for years and years and years. And he speaks four languages, which is a lot for a French person. I, I can tell you like, <laughs> French people they don't speak a lot of languages. And he's been with the same hotel for years and years and, and years. And, it, you know, for him, he doesn't you go for like Bellman to like head Bellman or whatever but it doesn't feel like he wants to change the job it's not a stepping stone to something else mm. or it's not something just to quickly pay the bill which right now it very much is for a lot of people in New Zealand mm. just because well you, you know if you have to live your life on the shoestring no one wants to do that yeah so we need to reward um, reward them fairly for sure. Just referring back to the working holiday visas, though, one thing I did notice on your website with some of your interaction, Robin, was the comments from people who currently hold a working holiday visa and either arrived in the country just before lockdown and ended up leaving or stayed for a very short period, i.e. lockdown, and then left because they were concerned about what the future might hold. There were a lot of questions around whether these working holiday visas will be renewed or whether they'll be timed out. What are you hearing from immigration or do you have any lead on kind of answering those questions? I think like everybody, we hear nothing from immigration. What we hear is just the press release. So we don't really have a guess. I feel it's just a gut feeling. 
I feel that they're just going to be brushed away and be like, your visa is expired. Let's just go for the new wave of travelers. I feel like that's maybe what's going to happen. I don't want it to be that, you know, because there is a lot of people that just, you know, missed on that, out on that experience. And I think that it's a, it's a great growing experience. It, it's worth 10 years in uni. I can tell you that to get a gap year somewhere. But, but yeah, I feel like it may just, they may just take the easy road out, which is like, let's just get rid of all those guys and we just start, start new afterwards. But I don't want that to be the case. And yes, we do receive hundreds of questions every single week. We address that uh, hundreds of times, like when is the borders opening? When, you know, when, you know, can I get my visa renewed instead of like, since I couldn't come, but we don't know. And uh, immigration is in, and we probably look at the working holiday visa kind of last. It's, it's, it's always kind of an afterthought in, yeah, so far from their policy point of view. Yeah, I hope they don't just brush it away. Just because, you know, how you said earlier, it can take years for somebody to save that kind of money to come over here and do a year. So if they've got that money banked and all they need is an extension on their visa due to COVID, like, it, you know, what a great start for immigration. They just have to renew a visa as opposed to reissue new ones and go through that process. But Especially the fact that people on a working holiday visa are usually under 30 years old, because that's the one of the requirements. So they're the one which are the most likely to want to travel first. Mm-hmm. So let's take them. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Okay. So another thing you mentioned on your website is that you create programs to help develop the community around tourism related projects to support the sustainable growth of the tourism industry in each destination. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when we are on location in the South Pacific, we always take the time to run like tens of seminars to expand the local online skill sets. We do things like create your own website in three hours. They they are fantastic little uh, training for community projects such as school visit for tourists and and those kind of things. We also helped uh, provide data from the tourist side of things uh, to the government of Tonga, where they were reworking their well swimming regulations. So this helped uh, remove some uh, licenses from unscrupulous operators and in turn created a better environment for the whales and for the tourists uh, swimming with the whales. Uh, we're sponsoring coral plantings. We do those little straw projects that we did in Nure that I talked about earlier. And we're about to launch kind of a huge project with a new country in the South Pacific. Can't say anything about it just yet because nothing has been signed, but we're going to kickstart the uh, post-COVID recovery. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we don't like to talk too much about that. So that's why there's only just one sentence on the website because we just do things that feel right to do. It's really not for PR. It's just because we feel like we can do it. So we'll do it. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Cool. So with COVID having given our New Zealand industry a chance to reset, what do you suggest is the one thing our industry should be doing or offering to improve community relations and be more sustainable? All right. So for the sustainable side, in my opinion, be sustainable is not about ticking a few boxes uh, and getting a certificate. It's built from the ground up. So we receive regularly emails from travelers telling us that such and such company tell them that they are green or have this or that certification. And they were running super old buses. They had all the food items wrapped in plastic. Uh, they asked travelers to pay, ex- to pay extra to offset the carbon footprint or their carbon this or carbon that. Or simply that just the echo aspect of the tool uh, was just mostly speech rather than a real ethos. So I feel that focusing on actually living the ethos uh, rather than just saying anything in order to uh, extract as much value out of a traveler would be a good start. It was a growing feeling amongst traveler before COVID even, and uh, it was a little worrying us. 
So I feel like a lot of companies spend more effort articulating a sustainable message rather than actually living it. But on the other hand, you have some companies that do an amazing job, such as uh, River Valley. They are doing amazing there and they're literally living the part and, and it shows uh, in travelers' feedback that we receive. As for when it comes to uh, improving community relations, I have to be honest, we mostly focus on the, on the traveler relationship with New Zealand and the South Pacific rather than, you know, uh, what Kiwi thinks of travelers. So I'll be honest and I'll say, I don't know, it's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> but anything, have, have you seen anything uh, at the destinations that works well that Kiwis could actually start using themselves? Well, in, in the South Pacific, what's kind of interesting is that a lot of time uh, operators are actually doing other things, right? Tourism is it's their main source of income, but really not their main ways to spend the time. So uh, a really cool uh, example, for example, is in Nure. There is an awesome company in which you can um, scuba dive with them and do well swimming and well tools. And so uh, we went on one of those tours with those guys, which was originally from Israel. I have no idea how he got lost in Nure. <laughs> and yeah, so we did the whole tour with him. And, and while waiting to see whales, which usually takes quite a while, so you know you have three hours bobbing on a, on a tiny dinghy, you you know you get to chat with them and and what he does in his spare time is is replanting coral around Nui and, and mm. doing all these kind of things it's, it's just fascinating because literally that's what he does that's why he needs all this scuba equipment and then on the side he's like well i have all this scuba equipment i may as well rent it and do some tools with tourists and everything right so he does that literally all the time as a, as a living so we end up kind of like chatting a ton about that because coral planting is you know kind of a dream of mine i, I want to dedicate my life to that when i stop working and become a real hippie and so I, I really want to i really want to point out those kind of experience this guy literally lived that and so he has a small foundation that he told no one about it's not on his website it's nowhere and so then we actually ended up kind of promoting that a ton on the website and talking about these things so we get a bit more traction on that and get more donation and obviously we obviously going to be working with him and you know getting some tables and everything post-covid just those kind of things but yeah so those are examples in the south pacific and and there's hundreds ton of those um you know almost every village you visit they are doing some kind of community project on this community project on that when it's like you have some uh small villages uh, by the way tell me to stop i'm really passionate about that but tell me <laughs> to stop when you want me to stop but there are some little community project run by women which they try to upcycle all the the plastic that washes on the on the beach so they have like a ton of plastic so they kind of like grind it and kind of do some art with it and they do little bags and everything that they're there for sell to tourists so there is really a lot of things but you visit places and this is embedded in yeah. the experience because that's literally what they do what, what they, they spend do. their time doing and the tourist experience is kind of like here's a window into kind of our, our environment and 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 by the way we try to protect it by doing those tiny little projects and so it feels like it's so core of the experience it's not something like tagging along like hey we give 50 cents of each of the tour to like uh you know kiwis for kiwis which is not bad it's good to do but it feels much more like a sticker you know what i mean than, than mm. the experience that i just described yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's got to come from that pure passion driven right through the business to, to make a difference rather than, as you say, that sticker on the door or just, hey, we're doing this because we know that Qualmark might give us an extra point and we go from bronze to gold or, or whatever. When you look at, and we've interviewed Garth from Tongariro River Rafting, and he's a classic one with his Blue Duck project. And that really comes from a passion to beautify the Tongariro River where he's operating. It's not 
anything to do with this is my business and it's good for business. It's just I'm privileged to operate here. So this is how I want to give back because I've been here for so long. I want to make a difference and I can see the difference that I'm making and whether people buy into that or not is almost irrelevant to him. It's just what he's doing because he loves it and his team mm. love it and they're noticing changes on the river. And oh, I, I, I love it. What a success story it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Garth would be on the river, for sure. Rafting yeah. tools or no rafting tools. He would be there to, to, exactly. to do his conservation work. And River Valley, they will be growing all their own vegetables and, and, and living sustainably. Would yeah. there be tourists or not? You know what I mean? Like, they, you know, those kind of places, you can feel that they, that's what they do. And yeah. that's how they, are, they have been built. And that's why they have much more of a genuine kind of sell when they say that they're doing conservation and this and that. And that's why usually we get, we receive much more emails of like, hey, you guys should talk more about those guys, more yeah. about those guys because of this, of that. And so, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So do you see that that's something that travelers are really looking for these days? Do they seek it out or do they more just enjoy it when they discover it? I think that the younger the traveler is, the more aware they are that they can vote with their wallets. Yeah. And I think that it's it definitely is going to be uh, because obviously it is a big concern of, you know, any generation below 40 is like, oh, my gosh, global warming, the earth is coming to an end. Yeah. So we obviously are extremely concerned about all that. And so for this reason, I feel like, yeah, definitely travelers are going to be extremely focused on that. And if they have to choose between two products and, and if there is a price difference, which is not crazy, you know, let's say a 10 percent price difference, mm. they will still actually choose something which is 10 percent more expensive um, but that will actually save the planet uh, for say you know per mm. se mm. and i guess that then comes into that discussion we were just having about putting the sticker on the door is that authenticity and how you present what you do and what you're passionate about versus hey we do this we do this and shouting about it and Exactly. The less, the least you say it, the, you know, the more other people kind of say it and, and yeah. see it. It's more, you know, if it's a third party that kind of tell you, you know, if it's someone like us, like, you know, I ends the pocket that we say, by the way, this guy, he's saving the blue decks. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, it becomes genuine because that's becoming a, a true story, you know? Yeah. And that's why we don't kind of shout everywhere. Like, Hey, this is all those things that we do in the South Pacific. Well, we don't, we don't care. We just do them because we feel it's good. And one day karma is going to come around. If it doesn't, it doesn't, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I know it's terrible PR and marketing and everything, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like it, we're going to see a growth of that as well. Of like, you will need those third party publication that kind of tells you story for you because therefore it becomes genuine rather than yeah. you just literally adding yourself a logo that you say like, you know, uh, 100% green or you know 100% yeah. carbon offset or anything is that like, great this green food logo has been used a million times everybody says that but you know it's not because you just write a check at the end of the year that you genuinely are you know you can't just you know burn half a forest and then after say yes but we we planted the pine forest to you know just yeah, to offset or well, exactly. we paid some dollars towards one near yeah. yeah someone did that in Indonesia great it's not really <laughs> a genuine kind of experience or you know sustainable experience well we've seen it in the food industry haven't we you know with mm. the heart foundation tick and they've come under a lot of fire over the years by putting a healthy heart tick on some quite healthy products or products that are really high in salt or high in sugar and things like that so i think people are aware of it now across all industries and i don't think people fall for 
awards, badges, stickers. It, it more is about that authenticity of your story and your why. And so why are companies still doing it though? Because they haven't caught up with the fact that it's a bit cheesy. <laughs> I'm glad you said it and I didn't. I just asked the question. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, no, I look around and I can think of a few examples and obviously I won't mention them here, but that's, that's how they promote themselves. We are the most awarded or the highest ranked or we're this. Or, and it's like, well, actually. We're certified gold or platinum. Or yeah. It's like, well, what do you do? I don't really care about that. I want to know that if I go, you're story? going to look after me and I'm going to have a really unique, authentic, great experience that's memorable for all the right reasons. It's not an ego-driven discussion. And I think we're going back to the kind of the greener side of it, the sustainable side of it. You're seeing that in the younger activists that are even holding governments to account saying, oh, it's all well and good claiming we're in climate emergency. But what are you doing? You know, what are you actually doing behind that? You know, what, how's that actually going to change? Giving license for offshore drilling of the coast of Taranaki. That's what you do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's exactly it, right? So that's what you're saying is that it's these people who have these amazing sustainable stories that don't necessarily preach them themselves. It's a third party that's endorsing it, makes it seem, it definitely makes it more real. And with those younger generations coming through, that's definitely the questions they're going to be asking and they're going to be wanting to see more of. So if we're not working in that sector, then we really need to be thinking about that because that's our new generation. Agreed. Okay, so any statistics, Robin, that you can share with our listeners about the travellers that visit your website or any tips on how to really engage with them like you guys do? Yeah, if you want. So uh, in 2019, we had 6.3 million in equators and we tracked a little over 33,000 confirmed bookings uh, to accommodation and activity providers in New Zealand. So that means that we pretty much interacted at one point or another with um, every traveler that popped in New Zealand. And well, let me tell you, they are all different. <laughs> so so uh, that's why we have so many thousands of articles on the website to, to hit every uh, niche and every stage of uh, the traveler's trip. In 2020, obviously, we saw a dip. So we uh, closed that uh, a little under 4.2 million uh, unique readers, which means that there was a lot of um, Kiwis that were looking for things to do. And to be quite frank, the hot topics were all about the free and cheap things to do, uh, the best hike, the best bike tracks, and the best stuff. For. That, was, that was very much what they were looking for. So it was a genuine experience, like looking forward for things to do and interact with New Zealand, the country in itself. As for the best way to uh, engage with them, I feel like you, Lisa, you already know with your other business, but it's, it's all about reaching out to them through our long-form content. So uh, sponsored content is uh, by far the highest uh, converting adoptions and the best value for money as well. So um, it's seamlessly integrated and actually provide useful information to the travelers because nobody really likes an ad. So yeah, that's what I got for you. Hmm. Awesome. So what's next for the South Pacific Pocket Guide? You've mentioned another country that you can't tell us about, but what, are, what else is bubbling below the surface? And how can our listeners who work in tourism businesses get involved and get in touch with you? All right, so for the New Zealand side of things, we're wrapping up some major updates to the site and we, we just finished literally updating every single article that we had. Uh, plus, we have much coming up. We have about 300 new articles that are going to come up before mid-year. At this point, when we reach mid-year, we should have finalized things with a couple of new island destinations that we'll be covering as soon as, uh, well, who really knows? Let's say 2022. 
Mm-hmm. Let's take a gamble. Uh, as per getting involved, if you feel that you know you have a tourism business and you need an extra push, you can get in touch with us and show you how easy it is to be featured on the largest travel guide in New Zealand. Otherwise, just read the travel guides, uh, travel guides, and enjoy. I'm not much of a salesperson, so what can I say? People <laughs> that want to work with us, they usually know where to find us. Cool. And we'll add your details onto the episode notes as well, so people can um, see there that directly from there. <laughs> Are you, are you looking for a salesperson, Robin? <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, at some points we did, but right now we just decided that it was easier to actually work with people that want to work with us that, rather than selling ourselves to people. So we decided to go ahead without that and we should just have people contact us and work with us. That means we have a much smaller pool of advertisers, but they're all very happy and they stick on board with us, even through covid and so that's pretty awesome. And so we're really happy to come and have those people that, you know, they know we provide really good value for money to them and we never have to kind of like resell things over and over again. I feel like it's just a more sustainable way to grow a business. Look at that. Mm. Boom. Great. <laughs> okay. So Robin, we're um, just going to wrap up our um, show here. But of course, as we do with everybody, um, we have a quick fire round. So are you ready for that? Ready. <laughs> Okay, North Island or South Island? South Island. Ah, mountains or ocean? Ocean. Instagram or Facebook? Ugh, pass. Are you <laughs> kidding me? YouTube. <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, beer or wine? Beer. What is the one thing that you miss about France? Blue cheese. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> First place you'll visit when the borders open? I don't have the right to tell you. Um, somewhere in the South Pacific with a lot of scuba diving spots. Oh, okay. Uh, for favourite place in New Zealand? Uh, that rock around which you do seal swimming in Kaikura. <laughs> that rock. <laughs> it is the best spot in the country. Go there, float and enjoy. Okay. <laughs> best tourism experience you've ever had? Sea swimming in Kaikura. Nice. Favourite place in the world? Stewart Island. Very good. And what's your do something new for 2021? We are going to, uh, going to head to Taranaki again. And this time we want to make it all the way to the top of that damn mountain. <laughs> Every time we try to go there, we had like weather or, you know, just other issues. I want to go on top of that mountain. Excellent. Yeah, pretty spectacular views from up there. Not that I've been, but I have seen lots of photos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to go beyond the photos this time. Yes, yes. And don't take the Instagram shot, remember? (laughs) Yes, don't travel under the social influence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We don't, we actually do say those things quite often on the website. Yeah, that's great. Oh, Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to catch up and have a chat and can't believe you're just down the road from me in Turangi. So um, we'll have to catch up in real life at some point and continue our chat. But we've really enjoyed having you on the show. And as we've mentioned, we'll put your contact details in the episode notes. So if anybody likes the sound of working with the New Zealand Pocket Guide, they can get in contact with you directly. That's fine. Thank you for having me, uh, ladies. And I wish you a lovely Monday. Uh, not Monday. I won't say what day we were calling that. <laughs> ah, Wednesday. Wednesday. Here you go. 
It's it was Wednesday, Wednesday all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Excellent. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Robin. See you. Bye-bye.